0: Mostly what I got, you know, were the aliens and UFO type things and that NASA never went to the moon. And what I, I learned a lesson from one of our leaders at NASA when I was coming up in the ranks, I did a, a couple of years in senior leadership training. And, you know, that's when they train you and groom you to be top leaders within the space agency. And yeah. one of our leaders at the time was the, director at Johnson Space Center, and he was a former Marine general and kind of crusty, and, you know, he's been around and seen a lot.
1: Yeah,
0: I'll never forget during the training, he had what he called his rules, Beak's rules. His call name was Beak, B-E-A-K, because his, his comrades said he had a big nose, so they called him Beak, right, like a beak on a bird. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So he had these things called Beak's Rules, and I can remember most of them, but one of them was never argue with an idiot. And and, and what he said was, look, you're going to get people that are going to want to argue with you about things that you know is just not true. And what I'm telling you is it's not worth your time because there's a quadrant of people who aren't really amenable to having their views changed or altered by something as amazing like facts, right? Yeah, <laughs> so, f- facts hurt so, people a lot, so I think. So if you want to do, you know, verbal jousting and combat just for entertainment, you know, that's your business. But what we found in our research is that there's three types of people. They're, they're the space zealots who, no matter what you do or how bad you are, they still love NASA and they're gung-ho and they think everything you do is great. And it's not always great. There's a lot of bad stuff. Yeah. And then then you have the flat earther types or the UFO types who know that we're hiding aliens. And, and no matter what you tell them, you, you're never going to get them to think differently or the people who don't like going to space think it's a waste of money. Yeah. So so our goal is always to address and focus our time and attention on the middle, which is a much bigger middle. These are people who are not willfully ignorant, but, you know, they're open to information. They just never give it a lot of thought. Yeah. So we just just stop wasting our time with either end of the extremes of the bell curve because – it was a waste of money. That's, so,
1: ex- that's exactly right. Uh, sorry to cut you off, Donald. Uh, we're live now. Uh, you were just uh, you, were, you were bringing up some very good points, and I didn't want to stop you. But uh,
0: you no, know, I'm glad. I did record away. So. Yeah. So cool. just
1: uh, we are we are so we we stream it straight to Facebook. Uh, just introduce yourself. Tell them uh, who you are, what you're about. Yeah, uh,
0: Donald James. I live in Northern California, USA. I. Uh, retired from NASA, the American Space Agency in 2017. Most of my career was in education and public outreach. Uh, Our goal was to get many students interested in the space program. I developed a passion of that earlier on uh, in my career. After I retired, I was looking for ways I could continue to contribute to students, uh, and I was reflecting on my life and career about what I've learned and Uh, after one talk that I gave when a young man asked me if I could go back in time and counsel my younger self, knowing what I know now, what would I tell Donald? And among other things, I said, well, I was thinking about what my mother taught me about the importance of manners and how manners will do a lot more for you than your brains or your smarts, or particularly if you had a lot of money. And I thought it was worthy of exploring that a lot more and that culminated in a book that I wrote which I just published February 2nd and so that's what I spent my retirement doing and and now I'm loving talking to students about it and and trying to explain my ideas more broadly.
1: Yeah that's uh that's brilliant um I'm gonna have to get your book I've I've got i got a long list of uh of books that I need to buy so uh where where do you where do you get your book from? Firstly,
0: so uh, probably from where you are, you can. I know you can go on Amazon in Australia because I see the list on my little document that I get. Yeah, And um, you can get an electronic version if that's your fancy and it's not that expensive. Or if you want to order the um, paperback version, you can get a paperback version. Um, I considered doing an audiobook version until I discovered that it takes a lot of good technology to do it well. And you probably have to pay a professional voice actor to, to do you because I'm not good enough. <laughs> so, I may still do that because I like audio books. But so right now, it's ebook or paperback, and uh, Amazon is probably you know in Europe's neck of the woods.
1: Yeah, it's probably the best way. You can get anything on Amazon though. I could probably, yeah, yeah. Amazon's and got it it's all. Right. It's amazing. It's a it's a bizarre thing that's popped up. So um, <laughs> the people like I did sort of cut in. Uh, halfway. Um, so we were talking about, um, just before, uh, the, the people that I've had on, and we were speaking about David Weiss, the, uh, the flat earth guy. Uh, but you're exactly correct with that. You know, that bell curve. I think we spent a lot of time and this is why, um, I had a, I had a few people message me and they go like, why didn't you say this? Or why didn't you say this? And it's that exact point of you can't argue with an idiot. Uh, and I'm not saying David's an idiot. Like he's an intelligent man. Uh, but there's just a like, there's a part of it that he's never ever going to accept what I say. There's right. you know no amount of information that's obviously been thrown at him or proof, yeah. is ever gonna justify, uh, you know the opposite of his cause. Like he believes what he believes, and, and there is nothing that is gonna sway him from that uh, forever. Right. Uh, and then it's encompassed in in social status. Uh, he's now like created groups out of this this you know this belief. Uh, so now it's it's like now it's cemented um, because even if he wanted to back out, he's got too many people uh, looking up to him for answers, uh, and and he, he's he's stuck, I guess. So yeah,
0: yeah, I think you know I do want to underscore something you said, Josh, because I said what I said a little bit tongue in cheek with respect to what I learned, and I don't think the person who taught us that meant that we believe that the individual. To, in a totally total sense, excuse me, is an idiot. I'm sure Mr. Mm-hmm. Weeze's mother and father loved him very much, and his yeah. siblings. He's wonderful and all of that. And I'm sure I could go to a pub and have a pint with him, and you know we you know we can hang out together. The the point is that his thinking is idiot thinking because yeah, that's right. Um, as a one of my uh, friend astronauts said, look, I have been in this space. I have circumnavigated the globe. We have telescopes. There's many other that you cannot defy the laws of physics. Otherwise, you're coming at this question about the Earth being flat from a different standpoint that is just not supported by the science and direct observation. And so, uh, you know, I've never been in this space, but I've seen the photos. I've I've talked to lots of astronauts, friends of mine. Not one of them says they're flat. Pretty flat. You know maybe the way they define what flat is if they were to walk me through their logic you know i'm thinking that what they're thinking of is that if i were to go into space and look at the planet that it looks like this big sheet of cardboard and on one side the top side is what we live on and i don't know what's on the other side but that the notion is that if you were to go on the oceans that eventually you would get to a cliff and you would just fall off to someplace. So, so maybe how I've constructed my understanding of their interpretation of quote unquote flat yep. is not how they're saying it, but I can, I can assure you that the earth is a sphere as yep. are eyes are the other planets in the solar system. And, you know, uh, look, there are people who made a lot of money, with pet rocks.
1: (laughs) That's a fact, you know,
0: they, they picked up a rock and said, I'm going to call this my pet and I'm going to paint it and I'm going to put it in a box and sell. And I mean, in a way that's kind of genius, right? I mean, who would have thought that you could monetize a rock, but somebody did and they did it for as long as they did. So if this guy is created a following and monetizing the concept that the earth is flat, you know, I, you know, god love him i mean i i just (laughs) i just hope the people who follow him don't fall into similar other logic
1: oh yeah it's
0: that could actually harm and and endanger them you know as you know in this country we went through a period of time where you know, our president told people to drink certain fluids that would get rid of the virus, and it actually killed people. So people died because of what he said. So that's the kind of thing you got to be careful of. You know, I don't know if anybody's going to die because they believe the earth is flat. Um, I mean, they might not be adventurous because they don't want to travel anywhere, but um, you have to be careful about faulty logic in terms of what people tell you. And that that would be why I would label that logic idiot logic.
1: Yeah, there's um. So even speaking to him, um, there's a there's a part where you're like you believe what you believe, and then there's like a small aspect of danger to it because uh, to justify something like that, when there's so much evidence on the other side, you have to start adding things into it. Um, so it, usually when you speak to somebody who believes in flat earth, there's they're uh, anti-vax, they're you know any anti, any government, they're anti-police, they're anti-this, they're anti-that just to f- fuel their main argument of the earth is flat. Um, yeah. And there's, that's where I think it starts to become a little dangerous because it's not just about flat earth anymore. Like your flat earth yeah. thing has been debunked a billion times. They've done the tests. It doesn't work. They create their own test to prove it's right. So, it's, it's, uh, um, so it just reinforces their argument once again. It, it creates a confirmation bias by creating their own... Um, you know, they're on tests to, to, to do this and they're still like pushing it uphill. So then they go, what can we do? And they're like, uh, if you don't believe in it, God's going to smite you. <laughs> or, you know, you know, Bill Gates is out to put something in your body to control you. And you're like, is this about flat earth or is it about control? I think it, I, I tried to bring it up with him with that, that, an aspect of control. And I was like, is it just you guys do want to – Live under the rule of somebody and have this control, and, and it's not about flat earth, and it's not about anti-vax. It's about being controlled. He's like, yeah, kinda. And I was like, yeah, all right, buddy. But once again, what do you, what do you do? We're getting. That's the problem with this stuff. It's like you spend so much of your time, right, talking to others about it. Uh, tell me about your time in NASA.
0: Actually, let's start
1: off. When you're a kid, is this something that you dreamed of? Is this like a career that you like? I guess, uh, you know, you see it in the movies, the stories where you're looking up at the stars and you're like, I want to know more. Were you that kind of kid?
0: Not at all. But what I was was close is that I loved aviation and I loved airplanes and I wanted to be a pilot. I was fascinated with airplanes. Uh, I grew up at a time just at the beginning when countries were developing the supersonic transport, as you remember Uh, The United States had actually was working on a supersonic transport. At the same time, there was the development in the early 60s of this notion of this 747, this jumbo jet. We were still in the age of single aisle, narrow body planes. Of course, narrow body wasn't the terminology then because we didn't really have something to compare it to. but. I was fascinated by that. I, When I was in grade school, I used to get these magazines, these weekly readers, and I'd read about these things. And so that's what I was originally interested in. And my brother and I lived in a city that was right near an airport. It was right in the back of our house. And so we used to watch the planes take off all the time. Back in those days, we could go to the airport. They let us in the gate. We can go sit on the airplane and Damn. play around. I mean, literally. I mean, people might find this hard to believe, but there was a time when there was zero security, uh, and so I wanted to be a pilot. And I, when I, uh, and when I got into college, I decided to study aerospace engineering because I thought that was a good complement of that. But then I realized that in order to be trained to be a pilot, you I had to be in the military. And I, I got into the military and discovered that that was not a culture that I appreciated. Now, my brother, who's two years behind me, also wanted to be a pilot. He, uh, when he graduated, he went into the Marine Corps, and he didn't have a problem with it all. He just was so fixated on becoming a pilot yeah. that he, he was willing to eat snakes and do whatever Marines do. Is that what they do? So, Sorry to cut yeah. you on. Yeah, they do. Out there eating snakes. <laughs> they, they put you out in the middle of nowhere and say survive. You know, and so sometimes you got to eat snakes in order to survive. Yeah. Uh, it's pretty brutal. Yeah. But he, he, um, so my brother is more of an end goal person, whereas I'm more of a process person. Meaning, the process that I go through to reach certain objectives is really important to me. And how I couldn't just put a lot of my, um my opinions aside. And so I didn't last very long. And so I ended up having this cathartic experience and I changed focus. And in a nutshell, I changed gears completely. I still had a passion for aviation, but I focused on something completely different in school. But when I got into graduate school and I was now focusing on economics, that's what my graduate degree is in, I had this realization that I wasn't really being trained to do anything. I didn't want to be an econ professor. And in fact, I was uh, planning to go study in England for a while, and so I had all these plans. And so I, I was asking my um, some of the people who worked at the graduate school, you know, well, what can I do to get work in order to get some experience? Because it seems like everybody wants somebody with experience. And that led me to applying to a, a program in the United States that was pretty selective Uh, And I was fortunate to get in it, and that allowed me uh, to work at different federal agencies, including NASA. They had special slots for people who got into this program. And I actually got a letter from NASA out of the blue asking me to come interview, and I was surprised that I got a letter, and I'm like, wow, how did they find me, you know, Hmm. but... My dad said, never turn down an opportunity to interview. It's always good practice. So I did. Yeah. And the long and short of it is I got in, I got accepted, but I wasn't going to stay there forever because I wanted to go back and do what I had planned to do, or at least I thought I was going to do. And then in 1986, when the space shuttle Challenger exploded and all the astronauts died, I got involved in that effort after the accident in working with, the backup teacher to the teacher that died on the shuttle. And that whole experience completely transformed me. I realized how much the people really were, felt connected to that mission. They felt connected to the teacher, that there was a love for NASA. There was a passion for education. And I thought, wow, if I could work for an agency that can have this kind of impact on people, then this is where I want to hang my hat. And I decided, during that time that I was now going to make my career at NASA. And I wanted to serve in education. And that's what I did until I ran the whole education department.
1: That's wild. That is crazy. That's a, it's a a bit of a, I think you always had that, that objective. So it was, it's, it's good to hear that you, you were so focused on it. Like you said, instead of sort of grinding through something you knew you weren't going to, you know, uh, particularly like, you were just like, I'm just going to skip that and go around it. Um, yeah, yeah, exactly. What, what was your time like at NASA? Like what is, uh, I think, especially in Australia, all you hear from NASA is the, the astronauts, you know, you just, you, people got into space. Um, obviously it's way more encompassing than that. And there is that 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 thing where people believe, uh, once again referring, not even just the flat earth, is that uh, it is a bit of like they go, they, they spend too much money on it. Uh, but I think they don't really see the the whole picture. So, in terms of of NASA, and I know this is probably like a very large question, um, but what does it do? Like, what is the main focus of NASA, uh, and then what is everything underneath it? You know.
0: So the main focus of NASA can be divided into our primary missions. One mission is human space exploration. That is, how do we get humans in this space and do exploration? Another is space science. So the whole science, astrophysics, astrobiology, planetary science, earth science. We do a lot of earth-based science. Uh, it's actually in our charter. And then uh, the third main pillar is our aeronautics. Of course, that's the first A in NASA, right? It's the National Aeronautics and Space Administration. So. NASA has always been, and its predecessor organization, NACA, has always been at the forefront of improving aviation, improving air traffic control, improving safety, and things of that nature. Then we have a lot of, we do a lot in space technology that's more of an enabling organization, but it does play an important role. And education, which is the department that I ran, was really responsible for inspiring young people to be interested in the various disciplines because NASA wanted to always recruit, you know, the best and brightest minds to do the work that we're doing. So, um, so exploring space, space science and, and aeronautics, aviation, are what I call the three principal pillars of, of NASA. And then there's a lot that goes underneath uh, that. Most people are surprised to learn that the percentage of NASA's budget as a percentage of the federal United States federal government's budget is as low as it is. It's not very high. Yeah. Um, but, you know, there's always going to be, but we're very visible. So it always looks like we spend a lot more and things like that. There's always going to be people that think, terms of trade-offs you know they don't really understand how budgets work you know even if nasa got its appropriations reduced in half it doesn't mean that congress is going to put that money someplace else they have to appropriate money someplace else Um, i would argue that the kinds of things that the space program does in terms of national prestige in terms of inspiration in terms of technological benefits you know um far outweigh any cost it's actually it's actually a good news thing. I mean, if you were following the news right after president Biden got elected, there, that was right at the time we were putting perseverance on Mars. And he talked about how, you know, United States needs some good news, right? We just came out of this, you know, nightmare of yeah. the previous administration. We had this pandemic that was total chaos. The U S was doing far worse than everybody else was in the world. And so, you know, we were really reeling. And so, um, you know, having something good, you know, NASA can provide that. And there, you can, there, I think there is value to that. So but there's always people, Josh, who are going to say so, yeah. that it's, you know, there's too many poor people and all of that. a problem is not, you know, it's not about the money. We just haven't developed the right way of supporting from policy and infrastructure, the other types of social needs that we have, you know, we've spent a lot of money on those things and I've studied this stuff. So yeah, uh, no, i think that's just kind of how it is so it's a cool agency uh it's not it's young i mean i'm actually older than nasa i was mm-hmm. born a year i was actually born a year before nasa was actually created so it's a young agency hadn't been around that long
1: yeah there's such a like a huge turnaround from say you know like i remember like the the moon landing for instance and there was such like a they were rock stars, like anybody who worked on on that project. They were literal rock stars, yeah. Uh, and now it's just been like that that full one eighty where people are sort of starting to like go against it. They they, and, but once again, I don't think they see the benefit of doing stuff like this. It is yeah. it is important. It doesn't just have the application of uh, like just people going to space for the fun of it. Like there is actual practical impact. Yeah, like implications for it. And we can definitely use it in terms of technology. I think it's, uh, you know, a lot of people say this is like similar things about military budgets and stuff like that.
0: Yeah. You know, and it's, um, it depends on who you ask. I mean, when NASA has large events like landing on Mars with perseverance and the other uh, spacecraft, you know, curiosity, we get tons of interest and tons of hits. We have public events you know, before the pandemic and used to get thousands of people coming to our center to watch this, this, this NASA logo that I'm wearing on my shirt. I know your listeners can't see it, but I'm wearing the NASA logo. All I have to do is say the NASA logo. And I bet a hundred percent of the people who are listening to this have in their mind what it looks like. And the That's reason right. is NASA has one of the most valuable brands in the world. And I'm particularly proud of that. But it's also very global. I mean, you know, if it wasn't for Australia, we wouldn't have landed man on the moon. Why is that? Because we had our deep space network right there in Canberra that actually tracked the Apollo spacecraft. And I remember, listening to some of the air-to-ground communications as a kid and how the mission control people had to call the people in Australia to, to make sure that the systems were running and up in order to do this. This is what we used before we had the TDRS satellites, which are the, yeah. the space-based uh, tracking and data relay satellites, which was primarily built to support the space shuttle and then the space station. So. Um, in many other countries, you know, there was backup landing sites in Morocco and in Spain and, um, uh, and in Hawaii, and they built facilities to support this, and there's local people who were involved in this. So uh, somewhere I have a book about the complete history of the support uh, for the Apollo program by Australia, and it's a fascinating book. It was autographed by the author, and I, I think I put it in a box someplace mm. when I had to move some things, so... You know, so it, it tends to bring a lot of people together, and there's a lot of activity going on now, particularly in the commercial space sector. You know, SpaceX and Blue Origin and Virgin Galactic and, you know, ordinary citizens, although they have a lot of money, are starting to fly in space. So I think we're going to see a lot more of this.
1: Yeah, that was going to be my next question. Like, is this... Uh, NASA's still going to be the tip of the spear for this sort of stuff, uh, is that correct? Where, well, is, um like, the Elons and and the businesses, they, they sort of follow suit, or is it they're, they're open to do whatever they need to, to to fulfill whatever need they have? Or do they have to follow the blueprint that NASA has laid out for them?
0: Well, let's first start with this, and, and many listeners may not be aware of this. It was NASA who decided, well, it was the policy people, the administration people through NASA who decided it was important to beef up the commercial space sector. And, and in a nutshell, the goal was NASA, after we retired the space shuttle, wanted to get out of the business of sending rockets to low earth orbit, primarily to go to the International Space Station. Yeah. and to do other things, deliver satellites and payload. NASA wanted to get out of that because NASA was planning to go back to the moon and then to the Mars with human exploration and other robotic missions. So NASA, in, NASA in instigated a lot of the commercial space. Now, a lot of the people like Bezos and Musk, who are space nuts from their little kids, were already on the train to do that. Yeah. But as a very uh, specific example, the heat shield – that Musk uses for his space capsules when they return into the atmosphere was developed at NASA. It was actually developed at the NASA center in Silicon Valley where I work, the PICA uh, uh, blade of material. So that's NASA technology that he used. Wind tunnels at NASA had, that used to help develop some of the the analysis of the spacecraft that we provided contractual money for them to to develop their systems to meet certain goals so in many ways if it wasn't for NASA we wouldn't have had the kind of advances that uh, SpaceX and Blue Origin have done now make no mistake about it they put a lot of their own money into it they might have done it completely on their own without NASA's help uh, but, you know, NASA was trying to instigate this because we're trying to get out of the low-Earth orbit business. Having said that, now, they, as a commercial company, we're in the business of just procuring services from these companies. We'll buy a seat on their spacecraft. We'll, mm-hmm. we'll put uh, mass on their spacecraft. If we're going to deliver a payload somewhere, we've already done that. Blue Origin is probably going to, end up providing one of the landers to send humans to the moon from the gateway space station that's going to go around the moon. So these companies are going to have a contract with NASA to do this, but it's not really going to be NASA engineers working side by side with Blue Origin engineers as much as we used to do back in the olden days during the Apollo program when we had big companies who were building the spacecraft for us. You know, We were very much involved in the engineering of all those things. Um, And now Elon Musk, uh, I think at the end of the year, is planning to fly four astronauts that are complete non-astronauts. They're civilians. They just happen to be very wealthy and they can pay their own way and they're gonna go to the International Space Station. So he's free to do that. You know, that's he didn't have to get NASA's permission to do it. He just, because his spacecraft is already certified to dock at the International Space Station. So I think that, the NASA will always try to be pushing the envelope of technology and capability because we can afford to do that. Whereas Elon Musk and Bezos with blue origin and Richard Branson with Virgin galactic, they're a business, right? They have to make a business case for what they're doing. And if they can't make a business case for what they're doing, they're not going to be in business very long. NASA is not a business. NASA is a United States federal government agency paid for by taxpayer dollars. So our job is to do the risky things, to reduce the risk so other companies can take advantage of it. And hopefully that'll, you know, that'll continue to be that way. Now, there's some arguments about, you know, how we're doing it, and we're building our own big rocket, and is that really necessary? And and that's a whole other discussion, but... Yeah. Uh, but the idea is that we kind of push the envelope and some far out stuff that's uh, being worked on.
1: Yeah. It's uh, it's crazy to think that it's, it's really started, really starting to escalate now. Um, I think yeah. m- maybe it's the the dynamic that it has now with the uh, private and uh, public companies doing it. Uh, and it seems like you guys are kind of feeding off each other and, and it, it is another space race, I guess. Um, but in terms of like, it's all sort of isolated. I think the thing I, I like about it is you guys all do really work together. Uh, is this like across the world? Because I know I, I remember hearing like even the Russians work with, with the Americans and it, there's no like political agenda attached to it. It's just, let's
0: get to space. We we were working with the Russians at the height of the cold war. I mean, yeah. it's sort of the irony that, you know, we could be at each other's throat on one side, and on the other side, you know, we're shaking hands in space. Yeah. As we speak, there's Russians on the International Space Station with Americans right now. Uh, we bought rides on Soyuz to send our astronauts to the International Space Station, which, by the way, was one of the reasons that we wanted to develop a U.S. capability, is that the previous administrations felt as a priority for the United States, we should develop a U.S. capability to send our astronauts to low-Earth orbit but right after we retired the space shuttle, we didn't have a way to get astronauts to the space station. So we used the Russian rockets. We just, we just paid for the seat, you know, and the, the cost went up quite a bit. Yeah. So, uh, so yeah, so there's still a lot of cooperation going on. I mean, we cooperate with other space agencies, the Indian space agency, Israel, um, European space agency, Australia just developed its own space agency recently. And, uh, you know, so I remember helping instigate that What little I can um, there. So there's, there's, you know, a, a lot of local capability that's being developed, particularly in developing people's own satellite systems and nanosatellites and CubeSats that are probably going to be launched on other rockets. Uh, but um, there's a company, I forgot what it's called, that has a rocket, you know, launched out of South New Zealand. So they have a spaceport there. And so. Uh, I think this is just going to increase. Now, there is, you know, I'll just take the opportunity to mention with all this increase of activity, there there is a, uh, a, a concern, and that is space debris. Yeah. The amount of space debris in space is increasing significantly. And uh, we've already had in-space accidents, and we've already, already had concerns about anti-satellite weapons and how people can militarize space and things of that nature. And so... I I'm more concerned about space debris because it's a, you know a, a guy that used to work for me my executive officer in my last job his previous job was a mission controller for international space station and one of the tasks that he had was to move the space station out of the way of space debris coming mm-hmm. now the the, the debris was never on a direct course to the space station, but NASA has created a bubble around the space station that says any debris that's likely to, to transit that bubble, we have to move the space station to keep that bubble at whatever distance they decreed. Because yeah. that space station costs, you know, $100 billion and a, a tiny bolt from a spent second stage can destroy the whole thing. Yeah. So I, I think that's going to be an increasing problem and people are going to have to figure out, you know, how, how are we going to mitigate this? And there's different ideas about it, but all of them have pros and cons.
1: I think that'd be like, I don't know. If I was a Jeff Bezos, I'd be my main focus wouldn't be that at all. <laughs> I think that would be focused be more just getting up there and, and, uh, and, and and trying to be the first to, once again, make it a business. Um, yeah. uh, is, that's obviously going to be something that everybody has to work together because it is a real problem. Every, every space movie, every single one, ends the exact same way. They're in space. Lots of space debris destroys whatever they're in. <laughs> so it's... Yeah, it's yeah a, so
0: some of the efforts are on how do you keep the debris from getting there in the first place. So, yeah. Designing your spacecraft that can maneuver itself, or to automatically deorbit and disintegrate, uh, or uh, how do you design spacecraft that can be captured by other spacecraft and moved out of the way, or you know, brought down to a place where they can have it reenter and destroy it on itself? Um, and there's a lot of uh, you know, they're even looking at using ground-based lasers to move mm. spacecraft. You know, it turns out that if you aim a laser at a particular part of a spacecraft, you can heat heat it up a little bit, and the different temperatures cause the spacecraft to move a little bit, so you can, you know, you there can, you like, come. nudge it out of the way. It doesn't take much to nudge something in space, so. And I'm not an expert in this, so I hope any of your listeners aren't. Experts. They,
1: i they got I can, it all wrong, but I, I know guaranteed. they're
0: looking at this problem because it's going to remain a problem, you know.
1: Who's going to have control once we get up there?
0: You mean, well, there's there are rules that govern um, uh, space operations uh, and, and historical treaties. You know, like many years ago, there was a treaty that said, I don't know if it was a treaty or the space law that said that that, you know, for example, if you were to take an airplane, Josh, and fly it over a country that was, let's say, your enemy, then that country felt that you could violate its airspace and then it could have the right to shoot you down. Well, that doesn't apply in space. There was some agreement that says when you're up at a certain altitude, you're, you're going to be able to spy on a country and a country can't shoot your satellite down because it happens to be flying over your country. Cause everybody has satellites and they can see everything that everybody does. Yeah. So that was actually a law an agreement that was made. So there's other things like that. Um, you know, our North Atlantic defense agency, NORAD, uh, they track everything that's in space and they try to let people know when there's likely to be an issue, but they only track things that are a certain size and above. I don't, they don't get down to too small a size, so they can't really track everything. So I, I don't, there's not like one body, you know, there is a United Nations group that pays attention to a lot of these things, but doesn't have any authority to make countries do something different. Yeah. Uh, Just countries have to agree to do it, you know, amongst themselves. Yeah, that's,
1: uh, once again, I think that's the the only thing we're going to agree on. (laughs) Maybe maybe up until a point, maybe until uh, we're all up there and we get it figured out, and then I think things will change. Humans, uh, I think, um, I remember discussing with, it was my partner's dad, it's, uh, humans have this ability to create things well out of our knowledge and then adapt to it, you know what I mean? We have a good idea of of what it is, and then we we sort of, almost tripping over our feet the whole time, I don't see this being any different we have a firm idea of how to get up and how to get back but i think everything that comes after that is we'll figure it out when we get there type thing they got bigger things to worry about
0: yeah to some degree although nasa has has become much more risk averse over the years you know because the public doesn't tolerate very well a lot of accidents that particularly kill people so when it comes to human spaceflight, there are a lot, a lot of rigid controls and yeah. redundant systems and things like that. And, you know, because people have memories of the Apollo fire and the Challenger and the Columbia accident and the Russians have had fatalities. And, you know, what's sad to say, Josh, but as we see more, quote, unquote, regular people going into space as the prices come down and you can take a ride, like let's say on Richard Branson's plane. Um, inevitably, there's going to be a catastrophe that where people are going to die. And I don't say that because I'm, I'm pessimistic. I would like to believe otherwise. But if you just look at the dawn of the aviation industry, planes crashed a lot at the beginning before we got things much safer. Now when a plane has an accident or crashes, it almost seems unusual because... They're just designed so well, and and it's sort of hard to believe if they can happen. But, you know, we're just at the beginning of this, and the space environment is very um, unforgiving of any mistakes. Uh, So the question to me is, when that happens, it actually has already happened. One of Branson's, Richard Branson's, pilots actually died in an accident on a suborbital flight um, but when, quote, normal citizens lose their life just because they want to float for eight minutes in space, are people are going to say, well, it's too dangerous for ordinary people to do it. Let's have a law that says you can't do it. Yeah. Or are they going to say, well, that's just the price of adventure, and they spent the money, they signed the waivers, they knew what they were going to get into. I think it's probably going to be the latter, but it's going to call all of us to think about and remember that flying into space is not like getting on, you know, Qantas and flying to, you know, <laughs> yeah. to Sydney, right? Yeah, you know what right. I mean? It's, it's not like that. It's it's, it's, it's a much different game.
1: <laughs> yeah, it'd be, uh, yeah. Like getting on a plane is stressful enough. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and uh, going into space, I imagine, especially on your body, like the amount of stress that it would put in your body, like physically and mentally. Absolutely. Uh, um, but once again, it's, uh, I think, you uh, regular people are just uh, products of their nature. And we, we watch the movies and we go, that doesn't look so bad. You know what I mean? <laughs> they did it. Well, it's wait, pretty easy. Wait
0: till, they, wait till they they feel those G-forces of three and four Gs when their body is mashed into a seat and they have to have certain kind of suits just so they can breathe. I mean, it it's uh, it, it's not like taking a ride in an airplane. <laughs> it's At all. a lot
1: different. Very different. Um, I guess that like the question... Like a lot of people ask, you know, uh, there's been many arguments about this. The moon landing. Yeah. Do you get this one a lot where people are like, we didn't go to the moon?
0: Yeah. My first answer usually is this. Do you honestly think the U.S. government could have kept that a secret all these years when so many people had to have known about that if it was fake? I mean, and the other thing is we have telescopes now, Josh, that are powerful now right from where you are you can look up on the moon and see the things that are on the moon. Yeah. So I would invite anybody who thinks we faked it to say, look, I want you to get a powerful telescope and we can tell you how much power you need. I want you to point it at a certain part of the moon and you tell me what you see. I can sh- we can show you the lunar landing site. So the question is, are you seeing a fake image? I mean, you're your telescope, so you put the filters in or not. <laughs> you know, so so I I mean I, again it's kind of like the flat earth thing and yeah. i think in some ways though i actually feel with that question that it's it's like a it's like a badge of honor because what they're really saying is that is such a challenging complex thing to do that there's no way humans could have done that not even the great mighty united states So it's a testament to the people, the engineers who worked on that, that people feel that that was so hard to do, particularly since it seems so hard now to still do. Yeah, The problem now is not technology. The problem now is politics and policy. That's a different discussion. So all I'm saying is that, um, yes, it was challenging to do at the time and very, very risky, but things are up there. You know, there's, there's, there's too many people who are involved to to, to have to agree not to say anything. There's
1: like 400,000 people, right? I think that's the, the biggest yeah. argument. You know, the yeah. 400,000 people so would all, have to be Are they on all board.
0: lying? Are they all making up a story in all the pictures they have of their work that they did? and
1: Yeah, that's you right. Know,
0: I, I've met uh, one, two, I think I've met four... Apollo astronauts who actually set step, step foot on the moon. I mean, I just
1: mean those guys. You know, you've you've gone through this this mind boggling journey to the moon yeah. from Earth, and somebody's yeah. like, "You didn't go. You're just a shill for the government." I'd be so upset. <laughs> I'd be so angry. Yeah,
0: but you know, these guys, you know, they're kind of like the guy that I told you about. They don't argue with people like yeah. this. They don't need to prove. They know what they did.
1: Yeah, that's we right. Have,
0: we have the video. We have the audio. You can look at a telescope and see the things that we left on the moon, you know. But people, like you said with your gentleman that you spoke to before, people are going to believe what they're going to believe. They'll make up a story to rationalize something, you know. Hundreds and hundreds of years ago, when humans couldn't explain anything, we referred to them as gods, right? That's right the god yeah. on fire, the you know, the gods are mad at you or whatever this. But now, as there's scientific explanations for things, you know, you can actually we can't use that excuse anymore because at least if you think scientifically, you can show how it is. So yeah, I get that. That and the aliens that have it comes up, and you know, and then how do you go to the bathroom in space? For some reason, everybody's Is that a fascinated. big one. <laughs> you get that yeah. one a lot. How, How do you, do you go to the bathroom in space? Right, so it's uh, that's that's easier to explain, I think, than trying to defend everything else.
1: <laughs> I don't think I've like I heard that one. I thought that one was pretty pretty self explanatory. All right, it's.
0: Well, people wanna know, you know, since you're floating up there, how do you keep your business from floating around? How do you capture it? And, and yeah. you know, how do you how do you keep from floating around? And basically it's just a big vacuum cleaner that you stick your bum against and you strap in, do your business, it sucks everything out and there you go. and and they keep it all and they test it all to see how it affects things. So but we also recycle all the urine and the water and the, from the showers because we don't have a lot of water up there. So we have these really high tech machines that purify all liquids. So I've actually drunk water that used to be pee water on the space station.
1: There you go. You've heard it yeah. here first, everybody. You can drink yeah. pee water in space.
0: Drink pee water. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah,
1: like like uh, I like the analogy that you—it's uh, not the analogy—but you use where it's like if we if we don't understand it, it's immediate immediately a higher power. It has yeah. to be. I remember I did it. I did it a lot with. Um, I, I like. I believe in aliens. I think you'd be pretty ignorant to 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 go. We live in this this vast vast area of space. And there's nothing else. But I always used to go like the pyramids were built by aliens. It's just because you couldn't fully understand the, capa- the capability of a human. Right. Uh, we always assumed that people back then were just, you know, hunting with spears and stuff. And then these big giant pyramids came out of nowhere. And the fact that we can't do it now, aliens.
0: Well, you know, that's, that's a great point, Josh. It's the same thing about not being able to go to the moon. Like, how is that even possible? We faked it. So... We, we have a hard time explaining how people thousands of years ago built the pyramids because it seems impossible now, but yet it happened. And so if, if it wasn't human slave labor, who did the pyramids and how did they get there? So then we resort to something which is not provable negatively or positively. So that's why it's difficult to argue because you can't prove that. Now, to be fair, I believe that there is life in the universe other than just on Earth. I believe that. There is not one NASA person, not anybody that has definitive proof of that. There are most NASA people believe that that's true, and we're actually trying to find proof of that, but we can't prove it. So if someone says, I absolutely believe that that life only exists on Earth in this vast universe, I have no – I have – circumstantial evidence to suggest that that's possible yeah. but i can't yeah. say for sure that they're wrong because we we've never looked at them. we've never measured them
1: i think know? it's one of those things as well there's a lot of like uh religious belief attached to that where we're the only yeah. people here and i think anything outside of that sort of blows all of that open where it's uh yeah. you know god created us and we're the we're the chosen one and we're special and like every even if you boil it down to like an individual level every human wants to feel special uh, and then you can apply that to human nature then Uh, because if we all feel it then then we all want to feel special and the day that that's proven wrong it, it immediately goes maybe maybe we're not that special maybe we weren't put on here by a giant man in the sky Um, Well,
0: you know, think about that. If we ever do have confirmation that life exists in the universe other than on earth, what does it do to all the religious texts and the beliefs and all of that? It calls a lot of that into question. And that's very, that's very threatening to a lot of people. And, um, and I think that people will still have their beliefs, you know, they'll still cling on to it. And I'm not saying that I'm equating that with flat Earth. There are a lot of NASA people who are very religious people. They believe in God. They believe in the afterlife and all of that. They're also scientists. Yeah. So, um, you know, I'd like to live long enough to see that actually happen. I'm not sure I will, but NASA's looking. And, you know, one day they're going to say, we found organic life on another planet or somewhere on an asteroid, and we absolutely know that it's a living something <laughs> yeah i love to, I'd love to live the day to see that well it's
1: uh it's not getting any further away i guess <laughs> you yeah, know what i mean yeah <laughs> it's up uh, but it's it's crazy to think so it's like all the all especially with the aliens like i said you i think it, it's like those who don't renounce it straight away really want to believe the fact that there is something out there and i think that'll there's one aspect where it'll make us better uh as humans, because we aren't the only one and we're not that special. Uh, but then there'll be a bit of fear attached to it as well because, once again, you hear always hear about this and I've had many discussions with many people regarding, like, aliens, and they're always like, if aliens would have come here, why wouldn't they just wipe us out type thing? Um, but once again, we're applying human logic to an alien life where, you know, humans want to conquer and, and sort of take over. Um, yeah, it, it, how, did, how do... How is there so much background of, of, of aliens with area, you know, area 51 and the Roswell landing and how is it a government thing where they they well, you guys are a government agency, I guess, but how is it some people know, and then some people are kind of, you know, left in the dark. Cause I believe a, a few countries are coming out now saying, yeah, they exist. So what is, what is your take on that?
0: And, and why? Well, um, here, here's something that your listeners, having listened to me so far, and thank you for doing so, might find surprising. But I often, when I give talks to students, I said, I'll tell them that, uh, you know, if you're, if you're paying attention, I will tell you where we hide the aliens. And, and, and the fact is, notwithstanding what does the term alien mean and what does it mean to you as an individual, there is a bona fide hypothesis mm-hmm. that goes as follows. Mars, which we now know from our spacecraft, once had a lot of water. We know that from our research work. We believe water is a critical ingredient to life as we know it. Then the water went away or it dissipated into the rocks or somewhere. We're still trying to isolate that. We also know that large asteroids not only hit the Earth, but hit Mars. There is a theory that a big asteroid hit Mars. The ejecta that came out from the impact included some of these early organic materials mm. on Mars, and some of it hit the Earth. And the Earth happened to be the perfect womb to create the start of the evolution of life. So if you follow that logic, therefore you and I, Josh are actually Martians. And there, we, we came, we, we, we came from, you know, yeah. a Martian soil, if you will. Now it sounds a little bit nutty, but there was a NASA scientist and it's not considered a quack thing we can't prove it yet. We don't know, but, um, There is something that to be said for that theory. So, what I try to do with people when I talk about this is to ask, well, what, when you think of the term alien, what do you think it actually means? Even when you get to the question of life as we know it, what is life? That's, yeah, it sounds like, what, how do you know it when you see it? Is it, is it a microorganism? And if it is, what is the mic- what are the properties of that microorganism that have to exist before you or the scientists would say that is a living thing, right? Like a virus is considered a living thing. Our COVID yeah. virus is a living thing. Is that what it is? A lot of people think that we're going to find you know, little green men. Well, why are they green? Where'd they get the color from? Why are their eyes away that were? Why do you assume that anything that's life other than on earth has to look like us? We're so arrogant that we think anything that's considered life has to right. look like a human being, but just deformed enough to know that they're not really from earth, right? So all of the tropes about aliens from the movies from many years ago, usually anthropomorphize, you know, aliens, you know, in a human way. So, you know, we have a lot to decide about, you know, people like, you know, um, uh, that famous astronomer in New York uh, who sort of did the Cosmos series. I don't know why I think his name is escaping me right now. Tyson, I think, you know, he says he thinks we're probably going to find like some blob, you know, somewhere that has certain characteristics that we would call life. But what if it turns out that the way something evolved on another planet or an asteroid doesn't have all the characteristics that we think you have to have for life? We're actually finding living organisms that are exist in really hostile environments on the earth in acidic lakes and deep underneath the ground where there's no light and no oxygen. And they're like, well, how could that actually exist? So maybe this notion that you have to have oxygen and you have to have light or you have to be able to reproduce is not the standard. So when when you really pay attention to this, Josh you quickly find out that it's hard to actually decide what exactly it is you're talking about so that if you find it, you can say, yes, there is life. Okay. So it's, it's, it's not a simple proposition. Yeah.
1: I I think we, we want to, we want to subscribe to the the fact that once again, like aliens will be like us. I think it makes it a little bit more relatable, uh, relatable and a little less scary. I think if the little green man comes down, well, one, we have, you know, size and and muscle over it so there's like every every sort of sighting there's been um, what was his name travis walton i'm just looking at he was uh yeah. he was he explained them the exact same way that you see them in movies uh and he was like uh, they're very easy to to overpower and i think as humans we like the idea of that that's exciting and it's fun because there's no threat there um but then saying you know a simple explanation is like just have a look at our own planet look in your own backyard and it could be one of these organisms that live in, right. in in these things that's not so appealing so we we don't really want to buy into it we we want the 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 disc to come from space and the little man to come out with the big head and the big eyes and the and uh, you know give us a we're here in peace type thing i think we're so focused in one direction that we're missing everything behind
0: yeah. I mean, I who am I to say that that won't happen? I mean, we don't know. It could, I could, yeah. Have, I'm, I, I'm doubtful, but I think what will be intriguing is if we ever validate and confirm that some type of, quote, alien space vehicle, which is mastered traveling faster than the speed of light, because that's what it would take. Otherwise, we probably would have seen them by now. Yeah. They start coming, and then there's going to be a debate on the planet do we assume they're here to harm us, so let's try to kill them first before they kill us, or do we assume that they're here to love us and let's welcome them as our heavenly brothers? I think you'll find a debate on that. Oh, hundred
1: you know? percent. It'll it'll be so even like if you if you take in all this unproven, like the Area 51s where the spaceships are here and the Bob Lazar stories where, you know, he kind of explains it and you go, that kind of makes sense. And, um, you know, how they, they, because um, uh, he, he was a propulsion guy, I believe. And then they got him in to figure out how these things move. Um, but once again, it's always like human arrogance to assume that they are here to, to hurt us when they haven't. If they were to do it, they would have already done it. I believe.
0: Probably. I mean, it's hard to say. I think it says more about the person who has the theory than anything else. That's so right. That's probably, that's probably what they would do if they went to another planet. They would first harm and control rather than try to be, you know, brotherly love, right? Yeah. You know, so who knows? I will say something about Area 51 that usually one of the reasons that people think about this is that that area which actually does exist was a testing ground for a lot of top secret spacecraft and a lot of times people saw something that they didn't recognize and that's because it was something that wasn't you know i mean i remember when the stealth fighter first came out people had seen images of that thing and they tried to image it and they didn't recognize it as any airplane they'd ever seen so they thought it was a ufo there's also a lot of atmospheric conditions which can make you see something that doesn't really exist but there's a lot of vehicles. Uh, NASA tested a flying saucer. We did. We tested a flying saucer in our wind tunnel that was actually built by the Canadians. And that was top secret for a while until it went away. So, you know, it's possible people are seeing things that are, are just classified test vehicles. Yeah. But we don't explain it. So therefore, people want to fill in the gaps. and yeah, say, Oh, it must be, you know, X or Y.
1: Yeah, that's right. Exactly like we were saying before, where it's if you can't explain it, you have to... Uh, it, it either doesn't exist or it exists f- from space. Uh, that's and, and that's 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 everything, you know? Uh, <laughs> yeah,
0: exactly, exactly.
1: It's, uh, that's how we think. And I, I don't think that is going to change anytime soon. Uh, let's talk about your book. Thanks, yeah. Uh, Thanks. Manners Will Take You Where Brains and Money Won't. That's from your mom.
0: Yeah, my mom told my brother and me that, if you learn nothing from me, learn this. And it took us a while to finally appreciate what she meant by that. Um, Sometimes I start when I explain a little bit about the title by asking people, do you think that there are a lot of very smart people who are in prison? And people say, oh yeah, you know, Bernie Madoff, he was bright, but he was in prison. And there are a lot of other people, right? And I also say, well, do you know a lot of rich people who are sad and unhappy? He goes, absolutely. Some of them commit suicide. Mm. So clearly being smart and being rich doesn't take you where you really want to go. Because I'm not sure most people start off in life saying, well, I can't wait to get to prison. (laughs) And I can't imagine a lot of people say, well, when I get rich, I can't wait to be depressed. So my hypothesis is that if you have a vision for what you want to do with your life, where you want to go, that, what this book's title is saying is that you need more than brains and you need more than money. And that's just a metaphor. There's probably other things too. And manners is something that I define very broadly. And so I spent a lot of time in the book to explain it's not simply the politeness and niceties. You know, again, there are there back in the the Jim Crow days of the United States, right, when there was a lot of segregation they were lynching black people just for looking at a white woman the wrong way. I've read accounts of a lot of these lynchings and a lot of the ex- the executioners, the mob were very polite to the person they were about ready to string up. They called him sir. And they, you know, mean And then in the next minute they're killing them. Right. So yeah. it's not, a, so there's a moral dimension to what I'm referring to. And it's much more broader than just, the specific niceties. So that's where the title where the title comes from.
1: That's crazy that they were nice to people that they were just about to lynch. And I've heard about some yeah. of the lynchings. I was listening to a, a podcast the other day and they, uh, I, I vaguely remember the story, but I don't remember the name, but it was very famous and there was hundreds of people involved and they kept souvenirs like his ears, his nose, yeah. his fingers, they castrated him, they skinned him, they hung him, they burnt him and then they dragged him through the streets. Uh, and yeah. I think, I think the reason why it was really, um, really prominent, cause it was false. Um, so the girl was like, she, uh, like, um, a young black man spoke to her, uh, and something, something they lynched him. And then she was like, no, I made it up. Um, yeah. But and the,
0: even, yeah. And, and so that's that what that happened a lot. And yeah. so and my, my point is, and I'm, I'm, using these example to exaggerate the point. Yeah. It is not sufficient just to be polite with somebody yeah. and have good manners. I mean, this is probably a stretch, but if you looked at the video of the famous George Floyd incident in the United States where yeah. the police had his knee on it, he was very calm and he was, you know, he he wasn't yelling venom at the man and he wasn't and i didn't see what happened before so i don't know maybe he was then but the video that i saw and i couldn't watch a lot of it he he was just very real that was it was almost in an eerie way how calm he was and so yeah. could you say he was polite well that's probably a stretch because a polite person probably wouldn't do something to kill somebody like that and he had him already subdued he could have handcuffed them and you know they could have taken them away you know so so i guess i just want to drive home the point that when i talk about manners i mean much more than just uh, etiquette and politeness is what i'm talking about and i i wrote this for students and early career professionals because what i learned when i reflected on my career Particularly at a place like NASA, to be successful, to have a fulfilling career, it's not being smart is not good enough. Everybody's yeah. smart. Everybody, you know, I was probably the dumbest one around. You know, I just barely made it. But let me tell you, pretty much anybody who works at NASA, they're very smart people. Yeah, I can I
1: could probably guarantee
0: yeah. that. <laughs> yes, and many and many and some of them, not a lot, but some of them floundered in their career some of them didn't get job opportunities they thought they should get some of them had got sideways with their boss and those were manners issues and so i'm trying to suggest to students while they're trying to be technically capable to work on a skill of manners and that's that's what the book is about and why i wrote it
1: i think it's a i think it's a great uh a great concept it's i think it really applies with with so many people trying to define themselves there's there's always that um the hostile arrogance where you know especially if you are the smarter or the smartest yeah. or you are the richest that it, it doesn't it shouldn't exclude you from being human you know what i mean it's you're, you're no different or no special you just happen to have this particular trait um Right. Uh, but it's always their undoing. You, I think we've seen so many cases of, of once again yes. these ultra-famous, these ultra-rich. Uh, it's like uh, they come crashing and burning because they have zero manners. They, uh, they treat people incredibly poorly. They, they have a sense of entitlement, which they think rules them out of, of being human uh and it's always their undoing it's always their their crash and burn moment and uh
0: and those are the the obvious cases yeah that's right not as obvious like well why was i looked over for a promotion or why don't i get invited to the parties or why can't i get anybody interested in what i'm doing and so What I'm saying is that it could be your manners and that, you know, you may not be able to see it obviously. It may not be the obvious case of somebody who's just super arrogant and righteous and narcissistic or whatever. It could be something a little more subtle. And that's where I suggest in in my book, I wrote a whole chapter about the importance of having people in your life that you trust and they trust you, that they can tell you the truth about things that you see. Uh, and I've had a lot of students ask me a lot of very interesting questions about subtle things, particularly in interviews and how to approach interviews and and how they show up in the world. And I said, for one thing, if you're not aware, really deeply aware of who you are as a person and how you appear and how you show up, I'm not saying you need to change your appearance. If that's if you are authentically like who you are, but you have to be aware of it. I'll give you, I'll just make it, let me just give a simple example. So you're Australian and I'm an American. Let's say you come over to work at NASA. What I would say to you, Josh is, look, I love listening to your accent and it's wonderful. And I never want you to change it, but you would be foolish not to be aware of the fact that the moment you open your mouth, people are going to put you in a box. Oh, foreigner oh, sounds like, you know, the half will be wrong and say New Zealand, the other half will be wrong and saying, you know, they, they won't get it right, whatever it is. So all I'm saying is, if you walk into a situation, don't be ignorant of the fact that the moment you open your lips, people are going to hear a certain way yeah. and they're going to start having opinions. So you might want to prepare for that, you know, or be prepared for certain kinds of questions, you know, and so... That's the kind of awareness I'm talking about. Obviously, the roles would be reversed if I were to come into your country. I'm not a fool. I know, you know, even in my country, I'm aware of the fact that I'm a black person. But I don't think about the fact that I talk like I'm from California, except when I go to the south southern part of the United States, where they talk different than I talk. So I'm aware that someone's going to say, Oh, you're one funny. of those left coast people, right? <laughs> that's right. You sound a little funny. <laughs> exactly.
1: Yeah, it's. Uh, I think that's a that's a really good point. I think that's once again that if, if your book can define that, I think that's great. I think we 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 overstep these small things, and it it's a small thing that that makes a big thing so much easier. Once again, if you're yeah. very aware of who you are and 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 your capabilities and. Uh, once again, even coming down to the smallest thing of like what you, you're going to sound different. If you can get yeah. that into your head before approaching a situation, you're not going to be dealing with it in real time as it goes. And you're not going to be trying to figure it out in your head while you're trying to figure out the social aspect of it, which is, you know, dealing with other people, which is sometimes right. super hard. Um, yeah. So I, I like that. I think that's uh that's brilliant. I think it's, it's what the world needs. I think we need to, a lot of people aim up here when they need to look just here first, you know, a little bit of humility, a little bit of self-reflection and uh, internalizing who they are and what they are before they, they step out.
0: Um, That's Right. And I, and I I think you got it just right. And it's um, on the one hand, it's simple. On the other hand, it could be difficult. Um, But if you're open to it and you're being mindful, you know, then it could, it could help you. Um, I write about examples. I've, I've interviewed hundreds of people for jobs and internships and other purposes. And I can tell you, there are some people that come in and, you know, they show me their resume and they've got straight A's in school. They go to the best schools and all that stuff. And after about 10 minutes, I'm thinking in my head, I would not hire this person if they paid me. <laughs> it, because... You know, for, for a number of reasons, you know, they were a know-it-all and they don't know yeah. how to think on their feet or I'll give them a, a question that's totally unrelated to the topic and I get deer in the headlights and, yeah. you know, then they complain, well, why did you ask me a question like that? That has nothing to do with NASA. And I said, because when you work for NASA, you're going to get problems and challenges that you had no idea were coming Yeah, and you to be prepared to think on your feet and decide how you're going to decide certain things. And so, i just trying to see how you did it. Right. Cause he is not in a textbook. Right. Yeah. When we have, when we had Apollo 13 and the service module blew up, there was no book that said if the surge service module blows up, do this.
1: Yeah, that's right. You couldn't we Google that. it. Just a quick we Google search. He
0: we said, we're going to have three astronauts that are going to be dead unless we figure out how to get this vehicle back. And then, and everything went out the window after that. So so that's kind of, you know, so I give examples like that. And I tell lots of NASA stories just because I have them. And I try to use those stories to illustrate my points.
1: I think it like the NASA stories are brilliant. I think once again, it's whatever you believe. I think you, once again, you could always recognize NASA. And, you, and, it, and it's, it's, a, it's a, a thing that is always held to the highest regard. You don't see NASA shirts, you know, just willy-nilly it's like people who have a real sense of pride in it and belief i know i know people in australia that have nasa shirts and they yeah. they believe in it and so i think yeah. your stories are relatable and a, a, at the the sort of upper echelon of 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 once again this is a worldwide view of people can look up to it and respect it i think your stories have some traction and i think it, it, you'd be silly not to listen to it but once again it's that <laughs> Just, I, I think of relating it to that. You know, people coming in and they they are incredibly rigid from the structures of their schooling and their and their, especially their economic backgrounds. You, you think people who come from, um, like the higher economic and they go to better schools and stuff that they'd have a bit more critical thinking, they'd be able to think yeah. on their feet, but they're not. They're so regimented and structured that they, are. once again, the deer in the headlights. Where I didn't learn that.
0: Yeah, you mean he didn't learn it? Of
1: course he didn't learn it. I didn't know that was
0: going to be on the test. <laughs> yeah, that's right.
1: Yeah. It's, uh... Well,
0: let me tell you, your job is going to be replete with things that weren't on the test. And um, uh, and, and and look, that's how we get to astronauts, right? Yeah. When we open up a call for astronauts, the last call we had, we had 12 slots for astronauts. We had like 70,000 applications. Mm-hmm. And those are mostly from people who thought they could actually make it. Now, we had a few people that just – did it just to get the rejection letters. It happens all the time. But when you get down to the last hundred, when you do your selection yeah, and you're down the last hundred and now you gotta go from hundred to 12, how do you decide? When you get down to the last hundred, Josh, they're all smart, yeah. they're all qualified, they're all fully capable. Yeah. They're smarter than all of us combined. So how do you take that hundred and go down to 12? Well, I talk to the people who select astronauts. I talk to astronauts themselves. And a lot of times it's a combination of, you know, they're looking for certain kinds of disciplines that are going to fit all other disciplines. But sometimes it also includes things like they observe them in social settings to see how they get along. So let, you know, Mm -hmm. so if you're in your interview, right. And you're really, you know, you're really on top of your game and you say everything right and you're self deprecate You follow all of the standard interview tricks that you learn. Yeah. And then afterwards you go out to have a beer with your other applicants and it just so happens that one of the judges is sitting at a table next to you and they see you bark at the server you know, excuse me, I yeah. said I want another beer for everybody. You know, please bring it out. Yeah. And the person is looking at you thinking, huh, so when that person is not on stage in an interview, this is how they really are. Yeah. That's authentic. See, when when acting is over and the credits roll, who who are you really? So they're looking for that. And um and I don't want to overstate that because I'm not saying that, you know, that, that happens, depends, yeah. but it happens. And so and it happens in other fields and environments. I mean, I, I don't know, maybe you've been surprised sometimes, Josh, when you've talked to people and then you meet them in person, spend some time with them and oh, you're yeah. like, wow, I don't, oh, yeah. I, didn't, I didn't think they were like that. Right. I guess it's
1: <laughs> the, the never meet your idol. Um, <laughs> You know yeah. that saying where it's like because yeah. they're 100% not going to be the person that you've built them up in your brain. Yeah, exactly. But everybody does the same in job interviews. I've done it. It's always you uh, uh, just uh, take the job away from it. When you first meet somebody, you always put this fake best foot forward. Here's the best of me. And uh, you find out the people with uh, who who do flounder, that's all they've got in terms of, of – of, um critical thinking in terms of manners in terms of that's they've put it all there in that that one hour interview and then like you said immediately as soon as they leave they're like holy shit that's all I've got I've uh, I've done my quota for the day of of uh putting all my nice stuff out there I'm just going to go be an ass to people
0: every well, I, everybody I, I, does I, I, it to a certain extent yes, but some
1: people can yes, carry the niceties on uh regardless of uh it's it's crazy to think that even NASA at a high level gets that I've, I've done job interviews. I I own my own business. Obviously nothing compared to NASA and you can immediately tell, I guess if you you speak to enough people, you can go, you are not like this in real life. And you're just, you're just telling me,
0: right. You don't want a phony. Yeah. Right. You don't want them to putting on an act for you to say, I want to impress you so that you would hire me to be in your company. Yeah. Only to find out that, you know, they're, they're, you know, they, they don't treat women right. Or, you know, they, they talk behind people's backs or they think they know more than you do. I mean, I I tell people, I have a whole chapter on interviewing in my book on my book. And I say in the book, you have to get into your head that you are always interviewing. You are always Mm. interviewing. I have met people who flunked their interview and they had no idea they were being interviewed. No idea. Now, they probably weren't being interviewed, but I've also met people who were authentic and they were genuine. And it turns out that when they were interested in who I was, they felt, oh, wow, you work at NASA? That's really great. You know, I've always had an interest in this. Long story short, I helped them get an interview to get an internship, and they're working at NASA. And they were not even interviewing me when I first met them. That's what I'm talking about. Yeah. Who you sit next to on an airplane? Right. Who do you sit next to in a place of worship? Sitting next to a bus and things like that. You're always interviewing. My father said, when you're going out in public, you need to be dressed and prepared as if somebody is going to interview you, even though if you don't know you're interviewing. And so this is what I'm saying, right? Because you don't want the phony. I mean, everybody could read a book about how to do an interview, oh, and yeah. you can tell the ones who've practiced. And and I appreciate that, and I give them credit for all of that. But what I want to know is, are you the real deal?
1: Yeah, that's right. Is that,
0: is that, is that what I'm really getting when the interview is over,
1: <laughs> especially for right. a place like NASA where there's there's not a lot of room for error if, if any. No. Uh, and if you've got somebody who's not their real self, you can almost guarantee they're gonna as soon as that pressure is applied, you know any of these situations that isn't written down, you know that they're just gonna buckle. You know that they're yeah. gonna they're gonna project everything outwards and everything's gonna be everybody else's fault. Uh, and and they're gonna they're gonna hide away uh, and that's that's once again that's a problem with these people who it's not it's not rehearsing like you said it's it's rehearsing life where you like i'm just i'm I'm instead of internalizing i'm going to give people what they want for that split second and then uh, i'm going to go back to being me over here uh yeah. when, no, when nobody's watching yeah
0: exactly you no know, you got it right man i actually once interviewed a person i said can you tell me about a couple of your biggest failures and the person literally said oh, i've never failed <laughs> i said never i said wow how do yeah. you manage that <laughs> yeah that's
1: right you've you've had a perfect run from day yeah, one you know I what said, i mean
0: yeah i i got my no stamp out on that one <laughs>
1: Yeah, I think people, like, have a trouble answering, like, uh, you know, what, what are your weaknesses? Uh, I don't have any. See yeah. you later. Well, thanks for your time. I'll catch you later. I, uh, so, I, like I said, I interviewed probably about, thir- like, 30 people for the business, and I used to – I threw that question out to the, to the ones that are on, on the cast. I'm like, what are your strengths and weaknesses? Strengths, I'm a hard worker. You know, I get there early. I, I show up. I'm doing this. I'm like, okay, what are some of your weaknesses? I have none. Yeah. All right. Uh, Thanks for your time. I'll see you later. Like, it's just, it's such a weird thing to not admit fault. Uh, I
0: understand why people do that. I mean, you know, they don't want to reveal that. But there's a way of answering the question that shows that you respect the question and say, well, here are the things, Josh, that I really need to work on on myself. You know, I need to be more disciplined about this and I'm hoping that you can help me improve in those areas. You're not saying, well, I'm weak in an area. You're just saying, here's where I can make some improvements. I mean, that's, that's, that's interview one-on-one stuff. But if someone says, well, I don't have any weaknesses, I'm thinking either I have a liar in front of me or I've got Jesus. Yes. Superman. (laughs) That's
1: right. Uh, that's, uh, that's exactly right. Uh, all right, Donald, we're, we're, uh, we're coming up to the, uh, the hour and a half mark. Is there anything you want to leave with? What do you, what do you got going on? What's happening in the future for you?
0: Thank you. I appreciate it. Um, right now I'm having a fabulous time talking to anybody who wants to talk about, you know, what I've written about, uh, manners will take you where brains and money won't is really for people who want to understand what, it, what, what do I need to do to have a fulfilling and meaningful career? Uh, that's not about learning calculus. That's not about being the best scientist. All those things are important. You know, I'm not saying, you know, NASA is never going to hire you because you have good manners. Mm, you have to right. know how to fly the spacecraft. All right. So I want to be crystal clear about yeah, that. That's right. Don't <laughs> broke
1: up with good intentions.
0: <laughs> good manners <laughs> is not going to get you a, a job. However, if you have bad manners, you may never see the inside of a spacecraft the rest of your life. Yeah. And so my, my goal is, uh, is to really uh, discuss this with a lot of young people, but I have higher goals and that is, you know, we've just come out of a period, particularly in our country, we have a lot of divisiveness around a lot of things. And I really, you know, as I look at the last quarter of my life, I'm 64 years old now, hopefully I'm around for a few more decades. I just want to do my part to advance the human condition. And part of that human condition is how we connect with one another, how we have empathy, how we respect one another, how we realize that there, yes, there are other people not like us, but they're not by definition our enemy. Um, And then if we do find people that are, that are, we feel are really our enemy, you know, how do we engage them in a way that's uh, that's not, not violent or not, you know, so so I just I wanna I wanna do my part of that. I'm not saying manners is the answer to that. I believe that it's a part of a necessary ingredient, mm-hmm. and um, I hope people like it. And I actually hope that it resonates in other countries and cultures other than my own, because I admit that I didn't write it for as a global treatise. It, it was really a U.S. centric thing. Yeah, but I appreciate interests from around the globe, and 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 whoever reads it out there, please write me and tell me what you think.
1: Done and done. I'm going to, if you send through your links, I'll send through the, uh, the podcast link anyway. I'll, uh, I'll attach it to the, um, to the bottom of the podcast, so people when they awesome. when they go to watch it or listen, they can just click straight on it and they can audio yeah. book. Uh, um, awesome. Once again, I got a, I got a list, but your book is on the list of books that I need to get.
0: Great. Well, tell me when you get it, and tell me when you're through with it, and let's we'll we'll just have a chat and talk about it. All
1: right. I can't wait. already right, Donald. Thank you so much for your time. Have a lovely
0: day. You're welcome. You too. Be well. See ya. Ciao.
1: That was Donald. What a legend. Uh, you can just see my head. Why doesn't this thing turn on when I need it to turn on? Uh, 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 uh. Anyway, but so Donald uh, obviously works at NASA. What a what a very smart and brilliant man. What a very humble human as well. Uh, I, re- I actually really enjoyed that one. That was great. Uh, this will be uploaded everywhere spotify everything soon and shortly once again if you like the podcast share it start uh, sending it out uh there's a couple options for support uh but sharing is probably the best one uh if you feel inclined i do have buy me a coffee and a gofundme to support the show and to help grow it i want to i want to keep this going i i i, I no, hopefully you guys want to keep this going too it's not just about me um Other than that, everybody have a great day. Hope you guys took something from this. Thank you so much. Bye.